Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Oscar Watch Podcast, the podcast where we look back at past Best Picture winners for your reconsideration. I am your host and your captain, Stephen Buja, and joining me on this quest, the one and only Amy Thomason. Amy, how are you doing this fine week? I am doing very well. Standardized testing is over. I'm ready to move on. We only have two more full weeks left of school. Yay! And I believe happy birthday is in order. We missed it last week. Yes, thank you. Happy birthday! Yay! And what better way to celebrate the your birthday and the start of summer than I think one of the all-time great start of summer movies, 1975's Jaws. Yes, folks, this is for your reconsideration, Steven Spielberg's summer blockbuster extraordinaire. Uh, now, of course, we have to ask, Amy, what is your relationship to this movie? Well, it's it's sad, actually. I watched it, like, at a slumber party when I was in fifth grade. So I have no memories of the movie from that. Mm. I have seen that little opening scene with the girl in the water just in, like, movie clips. Right. But, so this right. was really the first time I sat down as a conscious uh, audience member and watched the whole thing and really could absorb it. So it was really good. It was exciting. It was. It's one of those movies that we talk about a lot mentioned in film history circles. Does hearing about it and not really having seen a movie, does that how does that influence your viewing of this film? Like everyone says Jaws, one of the best movies of all time. Do you walk in with that in your head? A little bit, but I really tried to kind of separate it because for some reason I liked it more than I thought that I would. I thought maybe it's one of those overhyped movies that is really big, and then you watch it when you get older, and you're like, eh, maybe not so much. I really kind of went into it blank slate, Tubulu Rasa, mm. fresh, fresh brain, and it was really, it was really, really interesting. And I've got a lot to say, but I'm trying to hold back, okay. save some for later. And we do look forward to hearing your thoughts on this one. This is one of those movies where. If it's on TV, I'm going to watch it, but I never end up watching it from the beginning. So it's always piecemeal. I see it in the beginning. I see you know, the, the, one of the shark attacks, basically, or the last half. Oddly enough, I think most of the times when I tune in to watching Jaws, it is invariably, almost 80% of the time, it's the Indianapolis speech. Like it's within two minutes, it's about to happen if it's not already happening. And go, I. I don't remember the rest of the movie. So it was great getting to view this from beginning to end in one fell swoop because it has been many, many years since I have sat down and just watched this movie. And that was, uh, it, was it was great to return to, the, uh, to Amity on the old Martha's Vineyard to, uh, to see how the summer blockbuster all got started. And that is this movie. Jaws was directed by Steven Spielberg. It was written by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb, based on the novel by Peter Benchley, who also has a minor, minor cameo as a reporter in the film. It stars Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, Lorraine Gary, Murray Hamilton, and the one, the only, Robert Shaw. Who uh, always reminds <laughs> me of my father-in-law. Always. <laughs> no one else sees it. He reminds me of my father-in-law in The Sting especially in Jaws, because my father-in-law is a real rugged, outdoors kind of a guy. Uh He's got the mustache beard going on. And when I told him that he reminded me of Quinn, he made that, he said the the thing that he says before he takes the drink about here's to beer and bow-legged women or something like that. Yeah. Here's to drinking and drinking and bow-legged women. women. Bravo, (laughs) father-in-law. It was right. really funny. He's on your wavelength. I, I like that. Uh, Jaws was nominated uh, for a couple of Academy Awards, and we will talk about that yes. shortly after this break. John Williams the Jaws. <laughs> Thank you. 
Dick Zanuck and David Brown, thank you both for giving me the opportunity to work with an extraordinary man, Steven Spielberg. The great Universal Orchestra and my friend Herb Spencer, thank you, and all of the members of this academy for giving me this honor. I'm a grateful man. Thank you very much. Jaws was nominated for Best Picture at the 42nd Academy Awards on March 29th, 1976. It obviously did not win. That honor went to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, an episode you can listen to, not right now, but after you finish listening to this one, of course. Uh, it, was, it was nominated for three other Academy Awards, all of which it won, making it a very, one of the very rare films that won everything else except Best Picture. What were those three categories? Best Sound, Best Film Editing. Verna Fields, yes, very and good. Best Music by Mr. John Williams. Best Original Dramatic Score by John Williams, the absolutely famous um how, how would you describe it the the shark the the, the sharks the shark stocking scene yes. dun, 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 what, what, what i hummed at the beginning it's, it's one of those that if you haven't seen the movie you've still heard the shark theme oh everywhere. yeah it's in everywhere. it's, it's like the psycho shower scene violin yeah. music you've or heard the, it ten thousand times yeah. even if you or the star wars it. opening any yeah. anything by John Williams, like oh, I haven't seen the movie, but I have heard this score. It um, becomes part of your soul. I, I mean, can, it's just so infused in our psyches. Right, like the two thousand one theme, "Thus Spoke Zarathustra." This has become embedded in pop culture and the media landscape. So, if you play if you play this in a mo- in any other movie, you're immediately referencing the movie it came from you're like you're 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 doing you're you're playing the jaws theme something you know is stalking you you're being hunted and usually maybe it's played for comedy or for last but everybody gets it because we're all in on the joke because we've all heard it it's that it's really that iconic john williams was conducting the academy orchestra during the 42nd academy awards so when his name was announced he had to shoot up accept his award and then go back to uh i imagine playing himself off it would just be it would be, it would be funny if he just talked for 10 minutes because who's gonna stop him at that point who's gonna nobody's conducting they don't know what to do it'd be amazing he's just i can't think of an adjective that covers his genius oh, he's legendary he's legendary maybe his work it's sort of you know, it all, you know, his work is all, it all sounds, it starts to sound similar. It starts to sound like, you know, he never branches out, but who cares? Who cares? He, he made, the 70s and 80s, he made, he made the soundtrack to that. And my parents have seen him in concert before. I, and I've they, seen him in concert. That he's got this charming personality too. Yeah. And that he just seems, he seems like a humble guy, even though these scores have come out of his brain. Right. And, you know, he, if anyone could not be humble, it's John Williams. Like I've won multiple Academy Awards, been nominated, I think, literally every time. <laughs> if all he did was Jaws and Star Wars, that would be it. He could be like, yeah, yeah bitch. And then he also does <laughs> E.T., Indiana sure. Jones, Harry Potter. He, he's done most every Spielberg, Jurassic Park. He's done it. He creates something that's it's better it's better than music it's i don't know it's myth almost he creates worlds he creates worlds he's he's a world builder there is something missing from this academy award nominations indeed there is I would argue that there are several things missing okay well well, there's there's one there's one that i'm definitely one i definitely can agree on best director well, yeah, okay. Best director, definitely. Definitely. Spielberg would obviously he would obviously win multiple Academy Awards later on in his career. Uh surprise that he wasn't nominated for best director is a criminal. Then you but then you do look at the nominees that year and you go I have them I, I and I have them here. It was uh Federico Fellini for Amarcord, Amarcord Milos yeah. Foreman who won for Cuckoo's Nest, Robert Altman for Nashville. 
Stanley Cooper for Barry Lyndon and Sidney Lumet for Dog Day Afternoon. So, so you think it's a crime, but then you look at the list and you're like, really? It's like, ah, it's like, I'm mad, but I get it. All you get of, it. Like, a, like are- a lot of those guys are kind of, they're either in the middle or at the end. Spielberg is, this is, he's at the beginning of his career right now. And he's got time. And he will, he will, he will, he will clean up. He will become Steven it. Spielberg. I would have taken out uh, Kubrick for Barry Lyndon. That's not, it's not one of his best. Mm. I, um, I, I imagine a lot of people would probably take out Fellini, but yeah. Probably. It's, it's, it's Fellini, but. Nashville, there's a lot of argument that that's like the greatest movie ever made. I'm saying this in air quotes, everybody. You, they can hear them. They can if hear you're them. In, if you're into Robert Altman, Nashville's considered a masterpiece, yeah, it's, but it's, I've got opinions that I'm not going to share on that right yeah, now. Yeah, okay, we'll talk, we'll. We'll get to that. Conspicuously not nominated, Steven Spielberg. Also conspicuously conspicuously not nominated. Best Supporting Actor, Robert Shaw. The hell. The hell, people. Was it because he was given top billing for the movie, though? Because at the beginning of the movie, it says all it has all three of their names. Scheider, Dreyfus, I, and Shaw. You could have made the point... That you're like, okay, we're gonna squeak, we're gonna squeak him into the best supporting actor category. If like he has, you know, he's an iconic character, great Which lines. Totally he has the he has the speech of the of the movie that is wonderfully acted. Like, why wasn't he nominated? Come on. And Trim I up. agree with you. I agree with you. I think he should have won. No, should have won over George Burns. Come on, that's a career win. That's not a talent win. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, but hey, it relaunched George Burns, brought him back from a thirty-year hiatus, essentially. So we'll take it. But come on, it's Robert Shaw. As Quint. As Quint. Mr. Dude gets. Dude has like a really cool, a really cool death scene. And he has the best entrance. Best entrance, which we'll talk about. I want you to hold on to that. Hold on to that. (laughs) Uh, if you'd like to hear the rest of our thoughts on the Academy Awards that year, listen to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It has what won, what didn't win, as well as the rest of the movies that came out in 1975. Fun what a year. year. Fun Great. year. Jaws, of course, was the highest grossing film of that year. Indeed, for a stretch, until Star Wars, the highest grossing film of all time. It invented the term summer blockbuster. On June 19th, 1975, it was the sort of end of the studio system. We're going through a phase where the studio system has collapsed, but we're into the our very artistic, kind of gritty, late 60s, 70s phase of, of filmmaking. June 20th, Jaws is released. Literally everything changes after that. You have the two-year whiplash that occurs May, you know, end of May. 1977, Star Wars comes out, transformation is complete. We are no longer doing, you know, we're still doing small, artistic, gritty films, but the business model is turning to the summer blockbuster, the action, the sci-fi, the spectacle. And we can thank Jaws for that. For better or for worse, it all comes down to Jaws. It made $260 million domestic, $470 total, $470 million Total box office all-time worldwide adjusted. Decent haul for a movie about movie about a shark where you don't even see the shark for 80 minutes or so. So if you if you are complaining about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, at some point it, it, you you go back far enough. And so Amy's Amy's pointing; she's complaining about it. Go back far enough. You're kind of blaming Jaws for a lot of this. But when you are a good movie. You can be, you can afford to be quite successful, and we will talk whether or not Jaws is a good movie and how successful it should have been. Right after you listen to Robert Shaw talk about the Indianapolis. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian to Lady, just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. 1,100 men went into the water. The vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, 13-footer, you know. You know that when you're in the water, Chief. 
You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. Well, we didn't know. But our bomb mission had been so secret. No distress signal had been sent. <laughs> they didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was, shark comes to the nearest man, that man, he start pounding and hollering and screaming, sometimes the shark would go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. <laughs> No, by the end of that first dawn, lost a hundred men. I don't know how many sharks, maybe a thousand. I don't know how many men, the average six an hour. On Thursday morning, Chief, I bumped into a friend of mine, Herbie Robinson from Cleveland. Baseball player, Bosun's mate. I thought he was asleep. Reached over to wake him up. Bobbed up and down in the water, it was like a kind of top. Upended. Well, he'd been bitten in half below the waist. Noon the fifth day, Mr. Hooper, Lockheed Ventura, so as he swung in low and he saw us, he was a young pilot, a lot younger than Mr. Hooper anyway, he saw us and he come in low and three hours later a big fat PBY comes down and start to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So, oh, 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out of the sharks, took the rest June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. Amy, what is the plot to Jaws? Okay, a shark terrorizes a small New England town right before Fourth of July weekend. Okay, I was hoping you'd say shark arrives. Mayhem. Mayhem is. I was. I was thinking that. I was like, <laughs> no, no, no. I'll give everybody a break and not make everybody roll their eyes. But there's a shark. Mayhem ensues. Mayhem ensues. A local sheriff, a marine biologist, and an old seafarer team up to hunt down a great, war- great white shark wreaking havoc in a beach resort just before July 4th weekend. Yes. Um, start at the beginning. I have to say, I was watching this again, and I haven't, haven't watched the beginning beginning with a critical eye for a long time. And they say the first 20 minutes of a movie are some of the hardest to do because you have to establish basically everything about the film. You have to establish the plot, the stakes, characters, location, all that. That said, the first 20 to 25 minutes of Jaws are, I think, absolutely perfect. Oh. Oh, I, I was amazed at... The, the editing by Verna Fields is great. The directing, they... They, okay, you have the famous scene at the, be- at the very beginning, the beach attack scene with, the, with, with Chrissy and what's-his-face. They, they, go, they go swimming. One of them goes swimming, this, the other one. One of, the, one of the goes, the other, the other passes out drunk. <laughs> and it's this brilliant, tense moment because there's something happening. You see the girl get attacked, but you literally never see the shark. And then you have to you cut away to Brody's character, Roy Scheider. Great introduction as a fan, as a family man. He's from New York. You get it. He's now the sheriff of this small of this small town. 
it's his first year. He doesn't know the ropes. He's he's still new at this. There's you know, and all in all of the you establish Amity as uh, as a location with Murray Hamilton as the terrible mayor. There's a shark attack. Everything about this is so great. And then you get to the Quint, Quint introduction, which we'll talk about. You get to the Hooper introduction, which really ends the first the first third of the film by you know by getting by getting the band sort of around if not together i think the editing here is is just great because it doesn't linger and it establishes just enough of what you need to know to just move right on and spielberg is nothing if not a master of not necessarily getting to the point but taking you along through this world through in through the world of Indiana Jones, through the world of ET, the world of Close Encounters, he will just let you know everything you need to know, and then just take your hand and go, "Okay, now you know." Sit back, it's, you're in for a bumpy ride. I love it. Uh, I'm t- I'm talking now. What do you think of um, the of the, some, the character introduction and whatnot? I agree, it's amazing. Just some specific things that I noticed, and again, sure. I haven't seen this. I really consider this my first time really sitting. And viewing it. Sure. Um, first of all, that it's rated PJ. And yeah. when she's <laughs> naked and running, you can see things. And I thought, wow, they mm-hmm. would not that would not get away with the PG rating nowadays. Um Ooh. and it's a lot of tropes that we have in our country. The sitting on the beach with your friends and you're just kicking back and she wants to go swimming and it's just this feeling of freedom and she's taking off her clothes and she's running and she's just so happy. The part that is so terrifying, and I love that it's not graphic, is when it's like she's treading water and she's just really happy and the moon's out and it's beautiful and you just see her get pulled under real fast. Mm -hmm. She goes down to about her shoulders and she comes back up. That is, for me, the most terrifying thing in the entire movie. It's that what was that? You almost feel that panic of, oh my God, what was that pulling on her leg? And that then it, goes underneath the water and it shows her legs and there's kind of, but there's still not really a reveal and she's screaming for help, but the music isn't all crazy at that point. It's still, and then you just see her disappear. Yeah. It's, and that's it. Brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant, subtle filmmaking. And it's Spielberg's not giving his hand. It's just enough to terrify you, but it's not so, it's not too fast either. And that's why, for me, people people tend to very easily put this on the horror shelf in the horror genre. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's easy. And there's really only a few movies that I feel completely surpass the genre label and are just a great all-around film. Rosemary's mm-hmm. Baby is one of them. I think The Exorcist is one of them. Jaws is one of them. And what was the other one that I was thinking of? I don't remember. The Shining. They're all scary and terrifying, but there's so much more than just a cheap scare. Right. Which is why later I do want to talk about if the movie was made today, would it be better or worse? And I have my opinions on that, but I'd like to hear your opinions on that. Well, I I mean, I think the shark would be in a tornado and there'd be three of them. Yeah, it's... We can talk about that. And that you know it does. And like you said, it quickly establishes everything. It quickly establishes Scheider as an outsider. Yeah. His accent, which I thought was really funny. Um, yeah, well, I mean, if you if you need a if you need a New York City cop, like like, well, we can't get Gene Hackman. All right, we'll get the we'll get his partner from, from the French Connection. Exactly. We'll, and Rick Scheider, the seventies. Talk about being able to be like, oh yeah, I was in all of the great movies from the seventies. And then later, he went under the water in Sequest, and I'm pretty sure he fought some sharks there as well. Probably. Roy Scheider. You rock. Rest in peace. You do. I think I do think he, he died recently, which is sad. Yeah, which, which is very sad. Great, uh, a great loss. There is, you know, walking into Jaws that it is a movie about a shark. It's on the poster. Your friends have been talking about it. Certainly now, forty some odd years later, you know Jaws is a shark movie. There's still this sense of terror in when the girl Chrissy is swimming 
and not seeing it. In no and going, okay, like I know instinctively that's a shark, but my mind cannot see it right now. And so therefore, it could be anything. It could be a it could be a bunch of little like freaking minnows that form into some like giant super weird shark. It could be this ginormous, it could be any number of things. And my mind can't comprehend it because I can't see it right now. And um for whatever whatever reason Spielberg did, and we we will talk about that. It still is one of the most effective tropes, and uh, playing your uh, playing your cards very, very close to your vest piece of filmmaking ever. And I think that's why it still it still works even now. I was watching this scene on a tiny little screen because <laughs> I had because I had to. I'm sorry, folks. I had to, and I was holding on to something like, oh, God, this is. Like, no, get out of there. Get out of her. I know what happens. She dies and they find her and it's it's horrifying. But you still are, Spielberg is so good at suspending your disbelief that he's just going to, he's just going to pull you along. And if you've seen it a hundred times before, it doesn't matter because the craft is so good. The directing and the cool. editing. It doesn't just come oh. in like chopper in half. You see her no. yet pulled down and then she comes back up and there's a moment of like, oh, she's getting her bearings and then she's pulled again, yeah, she's like, pulled again, and pulled happened? again, yeah. and then back and forth. And then, <sighs> yeah. yeah. And then, and then we go to, and then we go to introduce our, our, our characters. You, we talked about Brody. He's the outsider. It's great. Uh, he's, uh, he is the archetype of the, of law and order. He's the family man. Uh, he is here because in Amity, one man can make a difference. It was the 70s in New York. Things were terrible. You, you were, it was an uphill battle all the time. Comes to Amity, he could really, he could really help out. So like, that's what, that's his drive. That's what he wants to do. We meet Quint. Uh, I think one of all the top three character introductions of all time. Amy, you want to take this one? I, and I texted you when I watched it. I said, oh, that was so great. Everybody's in a packed room and everyone's fighting and we we need to do something and they're debating on, you know, should we close the beaches, which obviously right. worst mayor ever. Right. We'll talk about that. They're they're debating this bounty yeah, that this this, uh, this mom has uh, has, has put and out all for of a shark. Sudden, you just hear the scratching on a chalkboard and you hear it first. And then everybody sort of turns, who's that, who's that? And everyone kind of clears away, and there's Mr. Salty Dog Sailor himself, Mr. Quinn, played by the great Robert Shaw. And and he 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 reads him the riot act about, you can do all this, I'm the one who can catch the shark for you, I need, but I need more than three the 3,000 this lady's offering, give me 10,000. And he says in this real thick accent so you sort oh. of not really understand what he's saying but that's that's what makes you listen closer yes. You're like, what is this guy but he he just he's just so cool like i will never be half as cool as quint no. man do i want to be he he quint don't give a fuck he wants he wants to get paid he wants to hunt sharks and that's it. And I and I love him. He is this this crusty old sailor, this hunter, this ex uh, this ex army guy, who is just the one of the. He's the. There have been plenty of salty sea dog archetypes in the past, but I think Quint really he embodies it yes. now in the in the the world that's been saturated by movies. When you think of this character, he's like, oh, well, I'm thinking of Quint. I'm thinking of the guy from Jaws. Anytime, like I would, I would see Quint. Uh, he would be in Moby. I would see him, Robert Shaw play Ahab. All the famous, all the famous captains and the, those like those just hard ass dudes from the from the, sa- he, the sailing he's the days. The guy in Treasure of the Sierra Madre, the oh. Houston character. <laughs> Oh, he could totally he could totally be that. He just made a he could make a career off. He could make a career off being years and just share stories with each other because they're both such badasses and they're funny. Yeah. They they're guys who have seen some shit. And That's on their resume. The just young, seen and you some laugh shit. at the young guys. 
Right. They're just like, yeah, Humphrey yeah. Bogart, sure you're going to get the gold. And he's like, yeah, sure you're going to kill the shark, Richard Dreyfus, with all of your brainy knowledge. <laughs> and your, your, fancy, your fancy stuff. You know, I also like, but I also like Hooper's uh, introduction. Yeah. You have uh, Richard Dreyfus, hot off of his, I think, like, debut, debut movie, movie a, f- a few years before, and became a Spielberg gold, golden child. I, you know, I never, I never cared much for Hooper when I was, when I saw this movie when I was younger, but now I'm like, you know, Hooper's kind of cool. He's this rich kid who really wants, who's uh, whip smart, really wants to help and has seen his own share of, uh, of stuff, though not nearly as much as, um, as Quint and who genuinely wants to help and, but is also very pissed off at how the town is handling this because you know he does know better than the mayor he does know better than brody and he thinks he knows better than quint in in some ways about how to properly deal with this and that's um i love how they they don't immediately none of the none of these characters become friends immediately they're they're kind of it's a uh very contentious relationship relationship yeah they they but they you know like they understand that okay we need to we all need to be in this together. Let's put aside our differences and do it. And that that friction, which I'm, if legend has it, you know, comes from being on the set with Steven Spielberg, and it's running the shooting is running over a hundred days uh, past uh, its initial production end. Uh, really contributes to the to the camaraderie because these guys are now in some shit, and they just they just got to make the the most of it. Uh, the the Hooper the Hooper introduction is probably the it's great, but it's probably you know in terms of letting us know who these characters are, it's the least bit. He just sort of comes on and like comes onto the dock and kind of takes over. <laughs> uh, you know, starts telling people what to do. It's like, no, you can't. You're 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 doing that wrong. And he just uh, he's kind of helpful in that. Yeah, I guess I'll step down and help these guys out a little bit. But I really got my own my own thing going on that's way more important than whatever have, bullshit they're they doing. They all have the arrogance. And I think one of the many things that makes this superior to other quote-unquote horror films is that they are such well-written, great characters. It's not just the, about the blood and the sharks and the watching people yeah. get killed. If that's all it was, it wouldn't be what it is today. But you have these great, funny, interesting characters played by wonderful actors, which just brings it up to a whole nother level. And yeah, not to say that he didn't have to do that. He could have just focused on the shark and it would be like, oh, you know, it's a movie and the shark and it was scary. And then that was it. But it's these characters that keep bringing us back to it. We remember the monologue about the Indianapolis. We remember the entrance that he makes. We remember him kind yeah. of making fun. Of, like you expect him to like knock their heads together, like they're the stooges, <laughs> and just be like these stupid young fellas. Yes, which is great storytelling. It the sequels, which we'll talk about, they focus on the shark, the shark, shark, whatever. Almost, you know, almost, almost exclusively, and it, you lose that. You need, in a, in a horror movie, especially when the threat of death is very real, you need to care about these people. You need to take time establishing what is, you know, who these who these people are, and why we should care about them. For Brody, you care about that he has kids, he has a wife, and he wants to do good for. For Quint, you just you just you're just you're immediately on Quint's side the moment you see him. You're like, yeah, that guy. I I like him. I I want I want to be him. And Hooper, you go, all right, yeah, it's Richard Dreyfus. Like, how do you hate Richard Dreyfus? And, and sort of, but you need to have that relationship. You need to care about these characters for their struggle against a ginormous shark to really resonate with you and. Also, and then when you, if you focus on these characters, you can have them do things. Um, this film, like, yeah, people call it a shark movie, but I think this is, if you, maybe I'm stretching it, I think this is a movie about kind of overcoming prejudice and your fear of either people or things to defeat something uh, even greater and defeat the, the, the literal or meta, metaphorical great white shark of your own. Um, you have this uh, city slicker lawman uh, who moves to a quiet beachside town. Uh, he, who is afraid of water? 
and he, he has to overcome that mm-hmm. by the end. Uh, you have this rich boy shark uh, enthusiast and marine biologist who has seen his share of shit, and but has never been an in outsider. any. Who's also an outsider? Who's never been in any real danger? He's gotten some like cuts and and, and you know and, and attacks. Who has to contend? But he has to contend with the idea that all of this money and this equipment, this shark-proof cage of his. That's uh, good. Yeah, which was like that <laughs> won't save him. Like my toys, my my intellect, all that, all that I define myself by with like this boat and all this equipment. That's not. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you have Quint, who has to put, who's this lone gunman who has to put his trust in these two guys, and ultimately doesn't really do that. You know, he's still he's still always mad at them. He sort of brings them along because they're the the bothersome kids who, like, he has to because yep. you know I guess you need you 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 need a body. And he uh, he kind of pays the price for his own arrogance because you know they're you know they're making a making a break from the from the shark and he's pushing the orca the mm-hmm. ship that he owns too too much. Not because he he um, not because it's the right thing to do, but because he. You know, he's kind of mad, and he's like, "We can make it. We can make it," and knowing that the ship will break, mm-hmm. and that will, and that, that, that arrogance, that, that pride in his, in his ability to overcome and survive all these things is ultimately kind of what costs him. Because when the shark comes up and just rips the boat to shreds and eats Quint in this uh. brilliant scene, and I love it so much. <laughs> and yeah, it's a, it's a movie about where it's really. Like the best, like the best survivor movies, especially in the seventies, we had all those disaster movies. It's about working together. It's about it's like we have this one big thing that's harrying and destroying all of us. We need to put aside all of our petty bullshit, and we need to go stop it. Exactly. It's so it's so much more than just. It is a movie that has scary moments. I don't. Now that I've watched it again, I thought, how does this get so shoved into that one narrow genre when it's really so much more than that? And I feel like movies like this are really sorely lacking today. I think nowadays, if the movie were made nowadays by today's standards, it would just be like every other movie. It would not be as special as it is, and which is why I'm glad it was made in the 70s and not right. today. Right. If, like, it's because... If this movie were made today and we never had a Jaws to begin with, I would be so curious because the only reason we have movies that feel so derivative of Jaws is because we have Jaws. Like we know, like Jaws established so many tropes for us, not showing the bad guy, you know, character archetypes, every like so much stuff about these quote unquote horror movies comes from Jaws. That I'm glad we have it. I just you know, like like you say, I do wish we had more films that didn't treat the genre as a box to just sort of be confined to but as a as a starting off point for something greater you where you can you can have a movie where people get ripped to shreds by by a shark attack and still have it still have feel a plot. And, and still have a plot and still just, like have emotions and not just and not just go oh that that and not just have the gore hounds go and be like yeah that that kill was great did you see how graphic that was i am i was surprised like yes, there's a severed leg that that falls, but how tame by comparison a lot of the the violence is, and also what a it's a very low body count. I think only about five people die in this. We see the girl. There's the guy whose head gets you know cut off. The kid, which I completely forgot. I was like, holy, that was the the, the spew of red coming up from the sea, and like. I, I, I looked at the monitor like, baby, are you okay? Children's legs under the water. Oh my gosh! Oh my god! It's he just he he just established. And there's the the guy, and then there's there's that guy who loses his leg, and then finally there's Quint who dies. It's a really it's a tame body count by horror movie standards, and yet they they feel so much more because they are paced at the right moments of the story. It's like just when you, just when it feels like maybe we're spending too much time on the people, boom, shark attack. That's the best part about having a shark that you don't really see. It's like it can attack sort of whenever 
you need the plot to have it attack to keep the tension building. So you can always remember that there is a very real incredible threat happening just outside the water of this town. It is, and it's an interesting story between all of that action, which I feel really summer movies are not a genre I'm really into because so often it would just be shark attack, shark attack, shark attack, shark attack, shark attack, big explosion at the end, and then there's your movie. It's it, Those kinds of movies for me get very, very boring. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the yeah. problems I even had with um, – with Quentin Tarantino's uh, The First Kill Bill, where just the people keep pouring in and they just keep killing everybody. And I'm just kind of, I'm literally sitting there like, okay, like checking my watch, like I get it. She can kill everybody. <laughs> now there's more, 100 more people and she's just chopping all their heads off and the blood's everywhere. That to me gets very, very boring very quickly. Yeah, but this- But you... this is totally different. This is yeah. a great movie interspersed with these- Moments of like, oh my god, when Richard Dreyfus is in the Shark Tank, oh, I'm watching yeah, it and I'm, I'm listening to myself. I'm literally like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh god. <laughs> yeah. And I was, and I was like, I'm one of those people, but it, it really is. And it was him in a Shark Tank. It wasn't any crazy special effects. It wasn't CGI. It wasn't whatever. It was just really great filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And that's laughing today in Hollywood, and it really burns my toast. Is that a Southern phrase? (laughs) I don't know. I just made that up. (laughs) You just made that up. And there are these, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the thing called the Spielberg moment in a Spielberg Spielberg movie. It's when, it's basically, it's kind of unexpected when you think something is going to happen in something completely different in, um, I think, in in E.T., the you know he he opens the door, uh, Elliot opens the door, and there's the there's a guy in a, a guy in a spacesuit there. Like what the, like really? It's like it's something mm-hmm. unexpected. I can't recall any moments except for Jaws. There's this great moment of tension building when it's July Fourth, everyone's in the water, and there's a shark. There's a shark sighting. People freak out. The you know the cops are in the water, everyone's uh, on the on the shore. They all got their guns trained on the shark that's coming in. All the parents are running but, to get their kids out of the water. Yeah. But it's not a shark; it's the kids. It's just the kids playing playing a joke on on everyone, uh-huh. lulling them into a false sense of security. You're like, oh shit! Then then the real shark comes. And you know goes into the into the pond, which they thought was outlet. safe. Yes, but they thought was thought was safe. Now, Robert and, Roy Scheider and, said, "Go swim over there because it's safe over there." And it's not safe over there. The kids see this dude get pulled under, and like immediately, and it's this that entire that entire July Fourth sequence is masterful. This is a kid who's twenty, late twenties, early thirties. Forget how old exactly, and he is. He is killing it. He is making something that I don't think really existed before. Like there had been horror movies, but there had always been a little cheesy. And now this is this is tension. This tension in a kind of a noirish way. There's this there's this creeping dread that is that is coming, and it's going to strike. And it's brilliant because it's not like a monster. It's not, uh, you know, the Ant Man or the Boogeyman or the Wolf Man or anything like that. It's something real. If you've gone to the beach, that's a very real danger that still happens. That's never gonna go away. Yeah, man, we have a we have a got we have an entire week devoted to sharks because of Jaws. Exactly. It's not it's a motherfucking shark from week. the Black Lagoon, which you kind of laugh at it. It always looks a little kitschy. It gives you a little bit of a thrill, but it's like, oh, that's yeah. funny. That doesn't happen. But this is about a shark. Right. This is about, it's, it's a real thing. Sharks exist. Maybe you, haven't, maybe you haven't seen it. Maybe you've only seen it in the aquarium, but like, they're out there. This could happen. Although, I will admit, you know the best way to avoid getting attacked by a shark? Don't go in the ocean. Don't go in the fucking water. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Just don't do it. You you know what you know what we need we need a move we need a movie that's like claws. It's just about a bear attack because oh what are you gonna do? What are you, oh you're gonna go in the water. Bears can swim. 
Like you're like bears are gonna fuck you up if they want to, but no, we're all scared of sharks. Like just don't and go in the water. And you probably had that Come fear on. on one of your many uh, hiking and camping expeditions. Oh my god! Uh, I, you know, I was terrified. Uh, I remember there were there was a pack of coyotes outside my shelter one night in the smoke in the Smokies. I, Smokies just before the Smoky Mountains. That's terrifying because man, those guys they have a terrifying laugh. Oh. Yeah, I'd be. I'm scared just hearing the story. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, like, oh shit. There was a there was a metal cage because shit happens all the time. So we were we were safe, but god damn it, didn't I saw very few bears and they they always ran off because bears are generally afraid of people. Sharks, sharks are also afraid of people. You're statistically very unlikely to be attacked by a shark, but still it happens and just don't go in the fucking water. It's fine. Yeah. Speaking of the shark. Uh, 40 some odd years later how does Bruce what they call the shark look these days I think only because I've seen you know so many documentaries on how they made it and how it wouldn't work and all that stuff I can tell it's mechanical so it's hard to go into it really with an open mind yeah but I still found it very effective. I am not kidding. When he's in that, when Dreyfus is in that shark tank, that for me was the most, like my heart was like, boom, 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 boom. And I'm saying, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. That was just unbelievable. And I thought, I thought it was convincing. He did a good job. It's convincing enough for what it is. The first, um, we don't see Bruce up close for the first, 80 minutes of the two-hour movie, which is a gr- it's a great tool born partly out of uh, storytelling, partly out of if we show the shark the way it is, people will lose the fear of it because it does kind of look goofy at times. Yes. During the during the during the back half when they are confronting it, you do see that oh this looks kind of weird and puppety the eyes for as dead and doll-like as they are they feel they still feel kind of off somehow Mm -hmm. and you get that but that's where the the editing comes in because i think spielberg said you have you know two frames it's believable you had three frames suddenly people start to see the the wires or something like that And, and and you're looking for it um i think it's still most it's overwhelmingly very effective and what's great is that it is actually a this is actually a puppet of like a mechanical prop mm-hmm. they built for this movie so it's not it not cg it hasn't it hasn't aged like that over but the I don't years see a cgi version of this movie at all no it would no, be no, like no. and my husband had a long conversation about this afterwards that i don't want a modern slick version of jaws i want what we got because if they made it again it would not nearly be as good i don't know no, it wouldn't be just like lawrence of arabia if they ever make i never want them to make i don't want to see cgi camels in the cgi desert i want david lean i want to know he's in the desert with sand driving his actors crazy driving his actors crazy and you know the racing camels or whatever that they were riding that's what i want yeah so many things are built on green screen or blue screen nowadays that somehow you feel it when like, you watch you watch infinity war and i, I like i like infinity war it's a, it's a great film but there's this they're on this planet that's been devastated by all sorts of cosmic events you go that's that's cool but there's something very satisfying about the last 45 minutes of this movie being just three dudes stuck on a boat in the actual ocean like it's really it's you get you get a sense that the people making it really do care now we can't travel to alien worlds actually so i understand that like we need to we need to set this up and you know do some cgi or or, or whatnot but having them in a physical place on a physical journey it adds to It makes it makes the movie age like wine as opposed to like vinegar. And it's you just it's not boring though. And that's why I think a lot of people nowadays would be like, if you did that, 
the parts where they're just showing each other their scars and stuff like that, people would be like, yeah, yeah, like, let's get to the action, let's get to the action, because we're so used to action, 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 that those downtime scenes seem like, who cares, who cares, who cares? In this movie, you do care, and those are some of the best scenes in the movie, and you feel that claustrophobia. You're in that little tiny boat that's creaky mm-hmm. and... Leaky and... And it smells, you can smell it almost, but, ah, so good. Yeah, but but still, you have these three guys who are going through some stuff, and there's tension, they're yelling at each other, but they still find time to joke around, they're, uh, they're exchanging battle scars, and they talk about you know the you know the the girl who broke Richard Dreyfus's heart, oh, the you know hardest yes. scar of all, and you're like, oh, it 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 breaks the tension because you really you know when you when you're in a situation like this, sometimes you just gotta laugh. And then um, then Brody asks Quint, oh, what's what's that one? And it's an old tattoo that Quint had removed, and that was that was a, that was a thing to do back then. And that's when we come to uh, the I think one of the most famous speeches of all time. The uh, certainly for me, it was the only time you'll ever hear about this historical event. And I don't think they made a movie with Nicolas Cage. I do not think it is is probably not nearly as effective as this four to five minute monologue of Robert Shaw talking about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis in World War II. What makes this so memorable? So many things. Um, <laughs> first of all, the story itself, and I'm just going to recap it quickly. Um, it was the, the they were the boats that were bringing over the atomic bomb, correct? And so yes. it was such a super secret hush hush. People didn't know where they were, things like that. They get rammed in the side. Torpedoed. Yes. They get torpedoed by a jet. Torpedoed, yes. And. So they can't get help because no one really knows where they are because it's such a top secret mission. So there's that instant sense of danger. And then Robert Shaw just said, you know, people died and people were just waiting out there for help. And while they're waiting for help, all these people are getting eaten by sharks. Three an hour, six an hour. Yeah. And the way that it's done again is why the movie is so great. If it were done today, First of all, while Quinn is doing it, he's just telling the story. The camera's just on him, and it's kind of panning over Richard Dreyfus. And every now and then it shows Roy Scheider, and it shows him. There's no weird music. No. There's no... Very quiet. Which is what I think would happen if they did it today. They'd have the music going, and I think it would show the flashback of the story happening. And you'd see the guys, you'd see the torpedo, you'd see all that stuff. You'd see the people getting eaten by sharks again, because nowadays we need action, 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 action. Need a show, 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 show. And then the monologue, it would end on Robert Shaw's face. And like, that would be the end of the monologue. The fact that it did not do any of those things, it could have been on a stage. It could have just Mm -hmm. been him on a stage doing this. And because of that, that is so effective. And Robert Shaw's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. If you have a good actor, and Robert Shaw is undoubtedly one of the very best, they are themselves the best special effects that you can have for your story. Film is a visual medium, so film is a show me, do not tell me. But there is effectiveness in just telling you something. In, te- in having in not cutting away, not sh- having any flashbacks, whether it's for budgetary reasons or not, you th- it is not it is it does not become about the event. It becomes about how this person feels about this event. You feel the hatred that Quint has for these sharks because all of his friends were killed by this because he was helpless against them because they couldn't do anything they just circled up and hoped and prayed that they would not be taken and when their friends were taken there was there was nothing to be done so you like you suddenly you understand why quint is doing this and even even if he tries to he tries to wipe away the memory of it it will it will always be there for him and that that's what makes it so effective is that it's not just a great way to 
tell you like tell a good shark story. It's a great character moment, and it also helps establish the stakes of here is what sharks can do when given the opportunity. And this is why we need to stop this particular shark. We need to stop Bruce. And all of that isn't part of the monologue, though, which is why it's so effective. Is yes, he's telling you a story, but he never says. And ever since then, I I vowed that I would kill every single shark. Right. He doesn't have any of that. It's just, here's the story, and that's it. And we have to imagine it in our heads. We have to think about it. We have to put together, oh, this is why he does that. Yeah. And it's – oh, it's so and good. he says I, it with I, this accent. Oh, yeah. He delivers it like – Like a boss. Like the best. I would, I would love to see a, a, a stage – reading of all the famous monologues on film just to because I, I, I think it could be very effective i would love to see this this, this is probably this, you know given given the um the intimacy of the movie like you could you could make a stage version of jaws He's- i think that would be kind of cool actually you could have the shark kind of off screen or just like in silhouette you could you could do that i think that could work somebody somebody who's more of a playwright than me please get on that um we are uh, we are coming to the end. Uh, first, uh, what do you think of uh, what do you think of how they dispose of the shark? Brody shooting it, shooting the air tank that's lodged in the shark's mouth after the shark attack. One of the few times that I liked an explosion in a film. Yeah. All right, we got it. You heard it here. And I'm not I'm not a summer movie. I, I don't get excited about all the Marvel movies and all that because again, it's explosion, 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 explosion. And it gets boring. It gets like, yeah, okay. Oh, guess what? That's a good one too. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's another there's another blow up. This there was one and it was mm-hmm. awesome because there was only That's one. So awesome. I feel like Spielberg used such restraint in this movie and that is why the movie is leaps and bounds better than like every single other summer movie that ever came out mm-hmm. that explosion you're like ah, yeah yes. it was so satisfying you know he, you know he's like um you know brody's line smile at this you son of a and just shoot and cut and you're like yes oh, and i you get yeah, it and i was like oh, yeah because because you know what it is a lot of the times i think you're rooting for the villain in, in these sort of things. You're like, yeah, get that that kid Jason, get that kid Freddy, yeah. whatever. Here, like I was I, I was told, I was always rooting for the for the people. And it's just so satisfying when they finally finally get they finally get one over on, on old Brucey boy and just blow him to Kingdom Come. Could it work would it actually work? No. Who cares? But who cares? As like Spielberg, Peter Benchley said, I don't I don't like what you've done with the ending. And Spielberg's like, people I've been telling, I will tell them anything for two hours. They are on, they're on board with me. If I say I'm going to blow up this shark with an air tank, God damn it. They're going to believe me. I am wildly paraphrasing. That's basically what he said. He's like, it doesn't matter what's real. It matters what's effective. And this is stupidly effective. It's great. It's such a release. And and like you said, Mm -hmm. villains, because it's a, it's an animal, it's a realistic, real-life villain. It's not a charming, cunning, Christoph Waltz right. in a Tarantino movie kind of a villain. It's it's just it's just an it's just an animal. It doesn't it has no motivation besides eating and uh, innocent children. And yeah, and it it doesn't it makes it does not see the difference between them. That's what makes it kind of more terrifying. There's yeah. there's this the sense that nature. Is not cruel. Nature is just wildly indifferent. Nature's gonna do what nature's gonna do. Nature's gonna feed, and that's it. And watch. The uh, have you seen? Have down. you? Yeah. Have you seen any of the sequels? No. Neither have I. I. I wish I could. I wish I could comment on them, but I. I haven't. I know that Jaws: The Revenge features Michael Caine, who took the role because he needed to buy a house, and I think features a shark who is going after. Brody's kids because he remembers when his it's something ridiculous it's called one of the called one of the worst movies of all time. But anyways, I will let, I will let the, I will let the other better podcasts discuss the Jaws sequels. Uh, we're here to discuss Jaws. So finally, should Jaws have won Best Picture in 1975? No. 
It is a much better movie than I imagined it. It a thousand percent holds up. It's better than movies that are made today. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, that emotional payoff that they have there just was, it was the best picture of the year. Okay. Okay. And I mean that, I mean, like, I have no issues with Jaws. It's, like I said, it's a perfect movie. It's better than made now. But that emotional Jack Nicholson and, you know, the fishing scene yeah. where they go fishing and him getting out and them all cheering at the end, it's just, no, that's that's still it for me. Pretty fantastic. I'm going to agree with you on the ground that being nominated is great. Winning is also great. But winning comes with the expectation of now, oh, you are the best pitcher. So I think not winning was the best thing to happen to Jaws because, like, yeah, it was nominated for best pitcher. It didn't win, though. So it can it can kind of have this it ha- can have this little chip on its shoulder being like Jaws nominated for best picture and people are like how the fuck didn't Jaws win best picture what one flew over the cuckoo's nest fuck this noise and it becomes this almost a rallying cry and while it is a uh, perfect summer movie I can see the only reason it was nominated was for the same reason that Avatar was nominated it made shitload of money and you at some point and it is it is very good in its own right like the technical there there are there's filmmaking craft on display that is unparalleled so i feel like the academy kind of throws throws those films a bone every now and then like star wars like we can't like we can't not nominate this or else like people are gonna riot if we don't nominate star wars like come on it's like people like it's been really well received but not winning i think did did more for Jaws than than anything else because now there's no expectation and it can just be it can just be Jaws eternal underdog because we can't go back and relitigate the past win the past wins except on this show and I and I agree with you it it didn't need the win but I feel that one floor of the cuckoo's nest is not an egregious win you know what i mean i think people are like are you fucking like one floor of the cuckoo's nest that movie sucked no one has ever said no no nobody's ever oliver it's not oliver it's not oliver and 2001 not even being nominated right and 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 as we as we said as we said in the cuckoo's nest episode any movie that was nominated for Best Picture that year could have won, and we'd all be like, "Yeah, all okay, right, yeah, that's it's fine." Yeah, like, yeah, Dark Afternoon, sure, Nashville, sure, okay, definitely, sure. So, and nobody's feeling bad for any for any of the the, the movies that were nominated that year. So, uh, do write us in, tell us what you think. Should Jaws have won Best Picture? Drop us a line at oscarwatchpodcast at gmail.com and find us on social media. And thank you so much for listening to this for your reconsideration episode. Amy Thompson, where can folks find you? At athomason11 on Twitter or message us on the Facebook. I've been still in touch with Mike from Ontario. And I noticed we had another person write in about Cimarron, which was very nice. Yes, David of the... Award Wieners podcast. Yeah, so I was very excited. Shout so out. So thank you, David. Shout out. Yeah. And folks, uh, we started summer with Jaws. Next week, we are going to, shall we say, remember the troops for Memorial Day with another four-year reconsideration, another trip back to the wonderful year of 1998. We are going to be discussing Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line a film I have not revisited in many years. Now I'm very curious how it will play today. Amy, I see you smiling. You're like, <laughs> you're not looking forward to this, are you? <laughs> not really. Okay, I, well, this I will. Be... I will watch it, but I have, I have seen enough Terrence Malick to have formed very strong opinions on Mr. Malick and his work. Okay, and we will talk about that next week on Oscar Watch Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in, and until next time, we'll see you on the red carpet.